Welcome back to the Principal Podcast, everybody. Today's guest is Paul Millard. Thanks a lot for joining us, Paul. Hey, man. Glad to be here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Paul, I'll let you kind of give the introduction of, of your background. But um, before you jump in, Paul's an ex-consultant and he wrote The Pathless Path, which um, is a book that I just finished reading and I reached out to him to try to have him on the podcast and pick his brain a little bit. Um, really, really interesting book for anybody who's considering doing something than the other, uh, doing something than the default path that's kind of been laid out for us. Um, so Paul, please, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me. So my quick bio is sort of grew up in New England in the US, um, was always pretty good at school, but it wasn't until college that I sort of gravitated towards, oh, I want to work for all these impressive companies. Um, I think it was the young male desire to kind of prove yourself and uh, achieve things in the world that I gravitated towards. And it worked pretty well uh, at the beginning. I think at least in the early years, I was growing. I was working with cool companies, challenged, met great people. But over time, I think you opting into this like success or achievement path, it never really ends. You always need to be leveling up. Um, staying in place feels like failure in that environment. And increasingly, I was being nudged to learn things I didn't really care about learning, like how do you impress the boss? How do you maintain like good network and all these things? And I just craved something deeper that I couldn't really name. Um, I flailed around for a number of years, jumped from job to job, but ultimately decided to walk away in 2017. And mine is, uh, my last five years is really a story of thinking I wanted to escape work and shifting towards wanting to actually find work that I want to keep doing kind of playing this infinite game of uh, finding the things that bring me alive and continuing to kind of build a life around that. Yep. Yep. And that's exactly what was the most fascinating part of the book to me was like, I, I feel like we've kind of somewhere along the way developed this misconception that we can work our asses off for a few years and then just completely escape work forever. And you know, while that might be true for a, a, few, a few select people, um, it's very, very unrealistic to think that everybody can can just work really, really hard for a short period of time and then never have to work again. And instead of doing that, you're you're talking more about finding something that you find meaningful so that you can commit to it and it doesn't necessarily have to be the centerpiece of your life. And it can allow you to, to kind of explore different facets of your life that you normally wouldn't have time to. I think the thing I discovered, and it, when I went to business school, I always thought it was crazy when I'd listen to people say, oh, I'll work two years in investment banking, but then it'll be worth it because then I'll be set up afterwards. It's like, I'm going to compromise. And I told myself, oh, I'm not doing that. Uh, I, I actually like what I'm doing. That's the story I told myself. Mm -hmm. But I think in the past five years of really reflecting and thinking deeply and writing about our relationship with work, I realized it's sort of inescapable to be part of that like broader success soup. Like our society's default pull is essentially to do more, to grow bigger as a company, to always be moving towards the next thing. And I discovered this super quick when I quit my job. I was like, just like, I don't even know what to do with my life. And I was like calling myself a freelancer and all anyone cared about is, do you have clients? What's your plan? Are you going to grow employees? 
And so it's sort of inescapable. And so the next few years, I really started leaning into how do I actually get space in my life to think deeper, to reflect, to live, um, to wander. And a couple of my answers were basically just to not actively pursue work and to move abroad. Yeah, and, and it's funny that you say that because I feel like in our society especially, like the first question that always comes to mind is, oh, so what do you do, right? Like you, you meet somebody, yeah. hey, I'm Paul, hey, I'm Arjun. Hey, so what do you do? What do you do for work? Or what do you do for a living? Um, these are these are the kind of questions that we think about when we first meet somebody and, and we kind of get an insight as to their life. But like how much does that really tell you about who somebody is and what and the things they enjoy and and kind of like the experiences they crave it doesn't really give you a whole lot of insight as to who they are. And I don't think questions like that are necessarily bad. Every culture has some version of that. Right? What they want to know is like where do you stand? Where do you rank? Like in other cultures it might be like what family are you from? Right? Mm-hmm. What's uh, they're trying to figure out like what class are you from? What's your background? What are you worth to me? And The thing is, nobody actually wants to be doing this. Everyone craves the deeper stuff. Some people aren't as in touch with themselves, so they can't be like fully aware of that in the moment. But we all crave crave this deeper conversation with the world, with ourselves, with other people. Except, like by doing what do you do, we feel icky because we realize what other people are doing and what's happening all around us is we're sort of being abstracted into these worker identities these roles and they're constraining because we sort of know um, we have to work, but at the same time, we're also trying to like continuously search for like that quote unquote dream job. It wasn't until I gave up the idea that I could find a dream job that I actually found work worth doing. And I think that's really hard for people to understand, but the work worth doing might not come with a paycheck. The work worth doing is really the stuff that like sustains your soul, gives you energy, helps you like connect to the mystery of the world. It's like these things can't be aimed at. A grad degree at an impressive university can be aimed at. And I played that game, but almost every time it always just felt a little empty at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think what, has driven me to write about this is that in over time more and more people reach out to me and say oh i've been thinking about these questions i have nobody to talk about these things with and then it just happened in 2020 more people started having this conversation more broadly and why do you think that was you think it was because of the pandemic that people had more time to think and just like be by themselves for a little bit that they started pondering some of these questions that were coming to your mind? I think all of us when we get in a rhythm, we get in a routine, we're in the inertia of day-to-day life, we forget sure. what's happening here. Right? We're just these silly biological blobs wandering around this earth for like 60 to 80 years. Right? It's kind of insane like the more you like step back right and it's like what what do we really want right i think most people don't want to like sacrifice enormous years of their time because of some payoff at the end the problem is most of society is kind of doing that now 
Mm-hmm. So when you opt out of that path of saying, you know what, I'm not just going to work and assume that I have to work continuously because I'm afraid of not having enough in retirement. When you lean against that, you are suddenly in opposition to how the world is actually flowing, working and existing. And that is just super painful and super hard. So what keeps people back is really they accurately assess, I don't want to go through that period of discomfort. Um, And I think what I tried to write about in my book was that, yeah, it it sucks. (laughs) People might look down on you, might judge Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. might think you're worthless. People are going to make comments all the time about you not having a job, you not being serious, you wasting your talent. But it might also be worth it because you might find something, a state of being, a state of existence that is so connected and so alive that it's like hell yeah, I'll pay. I'll pay the price for that. Yeah, I, w- I want to come back to that actually, um, especially like all the people that um, you know. You, you talk a lot about in the book how many people supported you along your journey and how many people kind of inspired you to to, to consider different alternatives. But I wanted I wanted I wanted to ask you like how many people were against you or were were resistance along the way? Like, did you lose friends thinking that? you kind of fell off the deep end a little bit? Nobody was against me. I was against the world when I left. Uh-huh. I became in opposition of the idea of like work. Work is bad. Work is crushing us. Organizations are ruining us. I was angry. I wanted to run away. And it wasn't until I softened that and like it really took a few years and a lot of reflection and sort of like inner work and mindfulness to sort of be like, oh, that's my choice. I was choosing to be in opposition to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really gravitated away from people. And when I heard people saying things like, well, don't you worry about like having a job? Don't you think people won't hire you? I got really defensive at first, but I've realized over time, they're just basically telling me their fears. They're not my fears. Mm-hmm. They're saying, and it's this unique position of people constantly are telling you what they're like biggest vulnerabilities. So I've learned to have a lot of patience with that. I think when you're on a path that makes sense and is successful, you have the you have the sense that you're supported because you have sort of the silent strong support of the universe. You're doing what everyone else is doing. So nobody ever asks you why are you doing what you're doing. Right? Yep. So as soon as you step away, people ask you all the time, why would you do this? This is so crazy. Why would you waste going to a good grad school to like basically be poor and try stuff for a few years? Why, 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 why? They constantly want to know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go from like not really having that much like active support to the feeling of having no active support. And when you said there were a lot of people that supported me, it actually was a very small number of people. I just really tried to lean into those people. It was probably less than five people that were like actively reaching out to me and saying, Paul, yes, what you're doing matters. Keep going. So, yeah. Sorry, those were the connections that you made through your writing who actually ended up being some of the ones that supported you the most. Yeah, and that was the crazy thing. I think 
when I started in my first couple of years, I think I was a little surprised that people like I thought I was close to in my life just sort of just said nothing. And what I've realized now is I, I was probably triggering their insecurities and fears for life. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you take these unconventional paths, you take this burden of basically being like a walking trigger for people. Like I should walk around with like a trigger warning. I may make you feel your deepest fears. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, writing was so powerful because I had these people I met through my writing that would just email me back and be like, Paul, I sense like you're really onto something. Keep going. And it would be so small, like, but it was so powerful. One of my friends, Jordan, um, would always encourage me and actively reach out and be so excited about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Even though like my day-to-day -day experience was like, I felt like a loser. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. And I had the deep sense that, yeah, I was on onto something, but it was impossible to prove to anyone. Mm -hmm. But somehow you managed to have some semblance of conviction along the way, right? Like you, because because you were able to to stay on this unconventional path that kind of challenges all of these conventional beliefs that everybody has like you strike me as somebody who's very in tune with their own values and is very introspective um so i i wanted to ask you who do you go to for advice or or do you go to anybody for advice who do you kind of do you, what's your opinion on on getting advice from people that are close to you I haven't been good at it. A lot of it is internal. Yeah. And I think a lot of advice is overrated, especially when it's big decisions. Like, mm -hmm. I think, like, the advice I would give people is, like, get more in touch with yourself first. We have yeah. so much truth inside us about what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I think I sharpened that muscle while I was working, doing those, like, quarterly reflections of my leadership values and, like, starting to read books like Designing Your Life, listening to sure. podcasts like Tim Ferriss and doing, like, Fear Setting. Mm -hmm. um, those were crazy powerful for me. I don't know if they work for everyone. That kind of reflection and writing, like, that, like, BS detection of myself being, like, you're full of crap, Paul. Mm -hmm. You claim to care about these things, but you're absolutely in the wrong environment. And it took me a while to realize that. Yeah. Um, I've tried to lean more into getting active encouragement and advice from people. I just started doing these board letters, mm -hmm. which is like people that have been supporting me along the journey or on similar paths. And I write this letter once every seven weeks. And I say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm struggling with. Um, here are the things I'm working on. What do you guys think? It's so crazy being self-employed because there are infinite things you can do. And as a solopreneur doing like the company of one thing, like I have no idea if I'm right. I'm constantly just kind of like <laughs> coming up with ideas and then doing them. And it's just I don't know if I'm spending my days right. I'm I'm really doing so much on like gut feel. Mm-hmm. And it's been nice to lean into, say, put things on paper and say, hey, here's what I think I'm going to to more deliberately do. What do you guys think? Mm -hmm. I'm getting some cool feedback. I think the biggest thing is just a forcing mechanism for me to be bolder about what I claim to care about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a really challenging relationship with ambition. 
I think I was so scared of ambition early on my path, probably in a healthy way, where I didn't want to create another job for myself. And I just wanted to create space in my life. I wanted space to think. I wanted space to wander. I wanted space to just like try stuff, Mm -hmm. not have the pressure to make money. Um, But I think that sort of cemented is like you should be skeptical of all opportunities to like go bigger with things. And I've actually gotten a lot of courage just from people reading my stuff and reaching out to me. Like they'll say to me, like, Paul, you're saying all this stuff, but you're not giving people a roadmap. Or like you have all these different articles. I don't know where to start. Are you going to write a book? And eventually like three people said that to me and I basically wrote a book. That was the same thing with like a course I developed. But all this stuff, like writing about work, the book, all these things, like some of the courses I've done about reinventing your relationship with the work, it has made less than like $30,000 in five years. Mm -hmm. So like it couldn't sustain me. I'm doing other consulting stuff and different projects to help sustain me. But that is the stuff worth doing and the stuff I fight to protect and make sure I keep showing up to do that. So my definition of success is basically just paying attention. Am I still doing those things? Mm -hmm. If I'm not writing, what's wrong? What do I need to reshuffle? So that's kind of like my true north that I orient around. Yep. And by creating a job, you essentially mean like having other commitments outside of the things that you truly enjoy doing, like writing, doing the course, et cetera, that would hinder you from being able to do the meaningful work. Yeah. I think it's just a feeling of being trapped, right? Mm-hmm. I knew what I had a job and I worked for a manager that was like anxious and stressed all the time. And I had to do all these admin things. And like, I had to overreact every time a client freaked out. I hated that stuff. I wanted to be able to say no to stuff. Yep. I didn't want to create a job in the sense that like I had to like wake up and work eight hours a day, five days a week, um, 52 weeks a year. I wanted to be able to wake up and say like, you know what? What am I going to actively choose to do today? Um, and I've been able to do that. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it's it's kind of been slow at realizing, oh, I've, I've done it. Um, I still have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what the next five and 10 years looks like. But to me, it's like an ongoing journey. Just keep the journey alive. Yeah. Hence why it's referred to as the pathless path. Yeah, exactly. It would make sense. So you kind of like, you flirted with the idea of going off on your own and just, and just jumping into this pathless path a couple times. And then you ended up just switching jobs, right? That's the kind of, that's the gist of what I got from the book, right? Like you would just switch jobs in hopes and like, you know, that excitement would take you so far and then you would feel the same way again. What? Go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I had the idea of doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. I think I had the idea like in one job where I was working with these independent consultants. I had the idea like, okay, maybe that's something I could do like when I'm older. Sure. My 40s or something. But yeah, I think it was just like increasing disappointment and like jumping from job to job and then not finding what I was seeking. And I didn't know what I was seeking. But I sort of just realized like, okay, I've worked for four different consulting firms, five companies, interned at like three other companies. Maybe I can't find it. 
Yeah. And like, maybe it's just not there. Like I worked in finance, operations, manufacturing floors I worked on. I worked in supply chain. I worked in organizational change, leadership, succession. It was like, maybe there isn't a dream job. Yeah. Or maybe you, you just have to go create it on your own. Yeah, but even when I left my job, I didn't have the sense that like I would do all the things I'm doing now. Yeah. I definitely did not foresee like writing a book. I definitely did not see like doing like executive coaching on like storytelling and presentations. Mm -hmm. I didn't see building like a couple courses that yes. like actually made money. All these ideas emerged from having the space to think, create, meet different people and experiment. I couldn't have done these things on the side of a job, which is why I think like side gigs are so crazy. Like I think side gig like talk is all about like, I mean, I had a couple hours to try experiments on the side in my last job, but like I didn't make much progress. I don't have like the energy after like doing a job for other people to yeah. do more. I don't know how people do that. It's tough, right? Cause like after you just put in, like you put in your 10 hour day, you went to the gym in the morning, like, man, you're kind of beat by like seven, eight o'clock and then you have to go do something else for two hours. Like it's really tough to find the time. So I, I respect the people who are able to pull it. Yeah. How, how are you doing it now? I <laughs> man, dude, it's just, I don't know. I'm kind of just willing myself to do it. Another part of it honestly is like, I actually, I'm fortunate in that I really do enjoy doing this, this podcast. You know, like there are yeah. times where like doing the show notes or, or whatever, like kind of the more monotonous things are like, uh, it's fine. I'll do it. But like having these conversations, I actually look forward to like, like this was the part of my day that I was looking forward to most, you know? So, um, that I, I would say that's, that's kind of helped me get through it a little bit. That's amazing. I think that's what I found with writing and a couple other experiments I did before I left my job. I wasn't making money from any of it really, but I had this evidence of like how I felt. Mm -hmm. It was like, ooh, there's a different way of feeling. You can be excited and want to do stuff not for money, just for the sake of itself. I think it, that's what ultimately pulled me towards leaving my job and having the confidence to walk away without much of a plan, no clients lined up, no path to making money. Yeah. It was just like that feeling. I'd rather be broke and have that feeling every once in a while mm -hmm. than like what I'm doing now. And that's the perfect segue because I want to like tap into your mind and see how you got comfortable with that uncertainty. Right. Cause like, if you ever bring this up, if you ever bring this up to a friend or a family member, um, they're like, well, can't just sleep you your job. Plan? Yeah. Like what's your plan? What are you going to do? What, where are you going to be in five years? But like, how do you, how do you get comfortable with that uncertainty? And not that you need to go explain it to anybody, but just getting there by yourself. Ultimately, a path like this can't be explained to others. And that is the fundamental challenge, right? Now, I do think uncertainty can be tamed, mm -hmm. but I don't think it can be unlimited. Like fear of uncertainty can be tamed, but I don't think it can be uh, eliminated. Ultimately, what tames it is just more exposure to it. So like being uncertain for extended stretches of time, I still feel uncertain. But it's like, oh, I've dealt with this for five years. I, I'm probably going to be okay. Um, you're probably going to show up again too. 
I have days where I feel so silly and ridiculous and like, what am I doing? This is so crazy. This is so tiring. But most <laughs> yeah. of my days are most of my days are not like that. Most of my days are great. Yeah. Um, I had this unique experience of being out of work and not being paid for like five months when I was 27 uh-huh. uh, due to a health challenge. Right. You talk about this. And I like during that, I just came face to face with the reality that like, even if I went broke, I still had my family. So in that sense, I was rich. However, I stupidly like, I think assumed it was going to feel the same and left my job without much of a plan either. It's like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. I'll still have my family. I was totally wrong. As soon as my money started going down my savings account, I'm like, holy crap. I might really go broke. This is terrifying. Mm -hmm. I might not find work. I don't know if I know what I'm doing. And what happens often when people leave their job immediately is they have this rush of like, holy crap, I need to figure out how to make money. And that energy is like the force of nature. And tapping into that, you realize we all have this hidden reserve of energy of like basically fight for our life. Mm -hmm. Like if you had kids in a family and you lost your job, you would be filled with like the force of nature to like go fix that. Yeah, You take three jobs a day if you had to, like you figure it out. And we all have that except like when you're sort of in like a... um wage-based job you kind of like solved that just by the like financials of your job i imagine you're in this situation now you make more than you spend right so like all you need to do is wake up and go to work the next day and like your money issues don't ever have to be confronted mm -hmm. right but underneath that is both fear and the courage to like step up and try to like solve solve that practically like when right. you bounce against the wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, I think many people try to solve their money fears by making more money. And I don't see that really work. I think it can like numb the fear, but I don't think it can solve it. I think you can solve your money fear by basically staring face to face with the fear and learning to see like where it's coming from. What is it about? What are you really afraid of? Is it about not belonging? Is it about being seen as a failure? Is it about, about disappointing people? What is it? And that's really hard. And that's another reason why people rather just stay employed. You don't have to face those questions. Right. You can keep just stuffing them down or just never even knowing what the actual answer is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... Yeah, I walked away and I was sort of hit with that jolt of reality and it was hard. Um, I don't think you, like, how do you deal with the uncertainty? You don't. You just, like, let it hijack your body and then you see, okay, am I willing to pay this price or not? Mm -hmm. Some people decide after six months, you know what, like, I took time off, I disconnected, I took a sabbatical or I tried freelancing, not for me. Yeah. Now I actually see the value in a job and I can orient myself in a way that's actually um, positive for me. Yeah. You know what else I think plays into it too is like we 
like when we're in a career for so long, we only identify our strengths through the through the lens of that career, right? right? And so we can't even think like outside the box or creatively as to how our strengths might be applied in different in other aspects or or in other career paths or whatever. So we only think about it within the context of the one career that we've had for the last six years. You know? Yeah. I mean, my last job, my boss was just like, Oh, you're not detailed enough. You make all these little mistakes. Turns out that is a great skill for like just shipping a lot and not worrying about mistakes. Yep. That has been super beneficial for me because I've gotten more reps than most people. Mm -hmm. Right. I've written like hundreds of newsletter issues. And I've like basically taught myself how to write and get better. Um, yeah, it, it's really hard. I mean, some of the things I was good at at work have really helped me in my current path. And like, then I just design around my weaknesses. So what is this concept that you, that you mentioned in, in the book? It's called Wu Wei. Um, I think it loosely translates to non-doing. Yeah, it's, it's a Chinese word, Wu Wei. Wu Wei. It's, uh, it, it means non-doing. And it's this idea of like nothing is done and nothing is left undone, right? It, it's sort of this easing into the truth of the universe of saying like everything that's meant to be is going to happen and is happening, right? It's this acknowledgement that like the greatest human existence is not about doing it's about being. And I think what it, it's interesting because it's more ingrained in Eastern culture. And you do, when you're in Eastern culture, you don't see the urge as much to like constantly do stuff. In America, we are the most extreme about like always doing more. People will literally say things like you can't just not do stuff. What are you supposed to do? Sit around all day? Mm -hmm. And we see the opposite of action as laziness. And that's not, that's not really the whole story. Um, we have turned something like leisure, something that like for thousands of years, people saw as like this connected state, this state of deep contemplation, connectedness to the world as something that is like watching Netflix now. Leisure is not passive. There's a state which is kind of an active state where you can sort of be non-doing. So like, I don't, like, as I'm talking, I don't actually know what I'm going to say next. Right? And mm -hmm. this is, this happens in most conversations. Like, I still like, don't quite, I can kind of get the next word, but we don't know like what's coming. But like, I'm very like present right now. I'm connected and like, I'm sort of like non-doing this conversation. It's very natural. Right. It's flowing. Um, so it's this hidden third state between like doing and like passive passivity. And I think I really experienced it the first time when I moved to Taiwan. Suddenly the default scripts of like, do more or you suck the default message that like a city like Boston or New York gives you. If you're not doing stuff, if you're not making money, you're worthless. That disappeared. In Taiwan, I didn't know really what the scripts were. I couldn't speak the language. And basically by like moving abroad, I like lost 
freelance clients and like didn't have any income coming in. Mm-hmm. So that made me super scared and like lowered my cost of income. I, I mean, lowered my cost of living down to like under a thousand dollars a month, but it bought me some time to kind of like just create space in my life. And essentially I sort of just wandered around and like read in parks, went for bike rides, um, would wake up and like jump on a train and go explore something for the day. And I found myself for the first time really like listening to like my body, what my body wanted. Mm-hmm. And in that time I started writing, like I would wake up and like find myself like super excited to write. And like after writing, I'd be like, that was so satisfying. And enough exposure to that. It was like, oh, okay. I need to cultivate that state into my life throughout my life. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a famous text from like a Chinese philosopher, Lao Tzu, um, Tao Te Ching, um, which talks about this state, right? So it's been in, we've known this for thousands of near, years as humans, but we've sort of lost it in modern society, especially in the West. We've sort of like subsumed ourselves into this machine of like money making. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not anti-capitalism, but I'm like anti-never pausing to like reflect on what life's all about. Sure. Is it fair to classify Uwe as kind of like a state of enjoyment? Because when you first read it, like when you first hear that it means non-doing, you automatically think, okay, what's the opposite of doing, of working or doing laziness or resting? But it's not quite that as you just described, right? Like you're kind of doing activities, you're being Mm -hmm. present and you're kind of just in the moment doing things that you enjoy exploring, writing, etc. I think the desire to classify it is like sort of not non doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like when you hear that phrase, it kind of elicits a little discomfort in you. And then you can sit there and be like, Oh, okay. That's something. Right. And like not have the urge to name things. Yep. And and this comes in like all aspects of my life. So I really try to integrate this of like not seeking, not doing things for things. Um, it's like, so when I launched my book, there's this whole like, you can try to boost pre-sales such that you like launch as a number one Amazon bestseller. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I see that. Interesting. What would that take? Okay, that that would take a bit of effort, things that I'd have to like push myself out of my comfort zone. Do I want to do that? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> um, is it stupid to not do that? Maybe. I think a lot of people would say it's, it's kind of silly not to like optimize this winnable game. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was like, what would happen if I just kept playing the game I want to play which is like having conversations with people and like seeing if it actually resonates with people so by like not trying to hijack the ratings or getting people to buy who don't want to read my book I've sort of like just leaned into the flow of the universe now and like I think 3,500 people have bought my book which is impressive but like it's only 3,500 people (laughs) But it's like the 35, like if you, if you right. go on your Twitter community, like the 3,500 people who bought the book really, really 
dug into the right. Book. And yeah. that's amazing. That's the only yeah. signal I care about. Yeah. Right. Maybe yeah. I could have sold ten thousand, and like it sort of like loses steam because I I don't know. Right. So it's sort of like, why don't I just like ride the energy, see if it takes off, and then like I'll react to the signals I'm yep. getting. Yeah. Instead of like doing marketing launch, how do you do a book launch? Right? right. It's like, I don't know. I just published it and hit publish and then tweeted about it and wrote about how it felt. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's impressive for sure. Like, that's an impressive amount of traction for your book that you really didn't do any promotion or, or traditional marketing for. Well, I did do some, right? So I asked myself, like, what would I be hell yes to do? And the answer is basically like conversations like this. It's like, I, lo I love talking about the ideas in my book. That's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book mm -hmm. to talk about the ideas <laughs> of more people. So if somebody reaches out, I don't know what your following is. I don't care either. I'm also just excited that you're interested in these ideas. Yeah. So it's like, I can do this. So if there's like two people listening to this that are like, hell yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Those are also like people that could potentially even become my friends in life, which is pretty cool. Yeah, ex exactly. And and where I was going with that was like, I've already shared the book with two people who are close to me who, and like, I kind of shared the parts that really resonated with me and reminded me of something that we, that my friends and I recently talked about. And like, who's to say that they won't pick up a copy and share it with somebody else. And like, just, it keeps on dominoing in that, in that sense. And, and um, spiraling out organically, right? Like you're not, again, it's not like a promotional thing. It's just like, Hey, I thought this would resonate with you. And, you know, once they read and reflect on what you wrote, maybe they'll have a take on it or, or something will really, um, strike a nerve with them. Yeah. And the lesson here, I think is my goal is not to get too disconnected again. I have so much evidence from my previous path that I didn't like that mode I was showing up on in day-to-day -day life. I was constantly doing things for the future action, for the future, right? For the retirement. You don't quit your job because how could you give up this money for the like next job, for like the status and the performance review? It's like, I don't like any of this. <laughs> if I could like remove all that, like maybe it would be a little more fun. Something that we use to get people to buy into these like, promises of tomorrow is is a concept called delayed gratification i actually wrote about this a while ago um but like we see we see people preaching about delayed gratification all the time my, myself included right like how else would you get somebody to commit to their job or their career without having the promise of it paying off for them in the future like making these small sacrifices or large sacrifices today for some kind of payoff that claims to be worth it in the future. Yeah. I mean, there's a game of like, basically, I think in Western countries like the US and increasingly many more countries, if you sort of just like go to college and then get a job, you will kind of like casually become like pretty well off. Mm -hmm. Especially if you like save some portion of that money in like a consistent way. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible. That's an incredible achievement for like modern society that we can take like billions of people and just like just do this job thing for like 40 hours a week and you'll kind of be okay. The problem is 
what used to like I call this accidental meaning. This used to accidentally lead people into very connected and meaningful lives. A few decades ago, like this is the only option. So like everyone's following this path and people are doing okay on it. Right? Except now like it's kind of fractured, like the expectations of a path are way higher and like everyone's not feeling as good. Mm-hmm. The reality is if you're working with your hands in manufacturing, it's more enjoyable for most people than like working with abstract bits on an Excel spreadsheet for 50 years. And we don't really know how to like solve that. My solution is basically just to do less of that abstracted work, more of the creative work and like work less overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you start to feel like a commodity over time, like a, like I hate to use this phrase, but like a cog in the wheel, right? Yeah. And we are, and like, we all are, we're doing these things at scale in a new way that that we've never really done before. And it's super weird. Mm -hmm. And I don't know like how people cope with that. It, this is kind of what I'm writing my book about, but like, I don't want my book to be the answer. I want 99 more people to write about their experience. Yeah. I think the great resignation is a ridiculous term. Um, I think what's really happened, and that's just basically like the math just doesn't really back it up. I think there's a great contemplation underway, which is a number of different factors. One is the increasing, it's an increase in the common knowledge that like this default path doesn't quite work as it used to. Another thing is that people are just having broader conversations about work that weren't being had before felt shameful in the past or were kept private. Right. I'd sit around with people before the pandemic and like people would talk about like, Oh yeah, Charlie got laid off a month before he got his pension. He's screwed. He lost his healthcare too. And then they would turn to me and be like, when are you going to get a stable job? It's like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. How are we just ignoring that? (laughs) That is so terrible, right? And how, like, yeah, and we just don't broadly support people daring to do their own things, especially in backgrounds like mine, which is more of like a blue-collar mindset of, like, de-risk your life. Sacrifice everything to avoid, like, any pain. Mm -hmm. And optimize around, like, convenience and stuff. And it's like, I don't know, that... I don't think it works for me. Right. The the craving and like putting that stability on a pedestal above all else. Like I come from a, a similar background too, where like that stability is placed literally above all else, right? Like the reliability of the paycheck and like the benefits and all these things are placed so high above your own satisfaction almost. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, just look around. People people get larger as they age in these jobs. Yeah. They gain more weight. Mm-hmm. Um, they work out less. Um, they become grumpier. They suddenly lose all interest in the hobbies they once loved as kids. Yeah. It's really sad. And so people will have all these things going on and we kind of just ignore it. It's like, yeah, it's like that's how people look when they get older. I don't know. This is crazy. Yeah. Like 
we have some of the greatest resources in the world. We have some of the greatest creative outlets in our history of our time. It's easier than ever to connect with people. It's like, why don't we lean into these things and like potentially explore how we can, they can make our lives better. Yeah. I really like that. You call it the great contemplation. Yeah. I think I might have to name the episode that cause that was, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> I like that it. was fire. I loved it. Yeah. And is I mean, is this happening? It sounds like you're having those conversations with your friends. Like, I'll tell you for sure, me and my friends were not having these conversations at your age. They weren't in the national discussion. There was sort of this deep sense that like, this is what you have to do. Suffering is part of work and life. And like, you should just shut up and learn to deal with it. You know what's funny? Um, there was a part of your book where like, I thought this was brilliant, by the way, the way that you kind of distilled this down where you said that um, I'm going to butcher this. So please chime in here. But <laughs> basically with enough coping mechanisms, people will tolerate consistent levels of misery for long periods of time. Right. Right. And I think by coping mechanisms, you're referring to like going out, drinking, you know, binging Netflix shows, et cetera. Um, and funny enough, it's like, over the past, even over the past year, like as this whole great contemplation, great resonation thing has been happening, like I feel like these conversations have become more prevalent when we're going out for drinks or just hanging out cat in a casual setting, right? Like people generally, genuinely feel that sense of kind of um, dissatisfaction. And it's coming out even in these settings where we're supposed to kind of be like tiptoeing around it or ignoring it entirely. Yeah, and I think what's happening happening is we're refactoring our work beliefs. We're going from like a very stable work belief era where it's like, this is what you do, this is how life works, and the potential paths in life were just limited and less. Now we're shifting to an era which is like, we're basically going through a technological transformation of society, culture, and work. And we sort of just pretend like we can just show up with like the like, uh, just show up at a job, get a job at GE, and like you'll be fine 40 years later. It's probably mm-hmm. a terrible strategy. I wouldn't be surprised if like GE is like not even a company 40 years from now. Yeah. Right? It's like, and so what I think is happening is like the seeds are being planted for people now. They're starting to have these conversations. I really don't think a massive shift is going to happen for at least another couple of years. People are just getting their footing from like the pandemic and like figuring out what the new normal is. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can work remotely. It's like, oh, this is great. Then you do that for a year and then you're like, wait, why am I in Boston? <laughs> I mean, you're speaking my language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, why aren't I in Indiana? Well, if I could just move to Indiana, why don't I go to Mexico? Oh, why don't I go to this country? Right. It's like everything is being refactored and people are giving themselves permission by giving other people permission by taking bold acts. Like, so by me merely existing, it doesn't even matter. You don't need advice from me just by looking at me and saying like, oh, Paul did a thing. It's like, oh, I could do a thing too. I could do where I remix on that. And as more people remix these paths, more people are going to see them as potential and reasonable ways to live. Like, and this is what makes me like want to figure out the money stuff and like want to make it sustainable and like want to do it with kids is like, if I can do that, I can give other people confidence that it's possible. Yeah. You can give somebody belief, faith, inspiration, or even a model on, on how 
they could do the same thing with their lives. Yeah, and other people did that for me, like seeing people like Seth Godin or like Maury Schwartz and Tuesdays with Maury or Tim Ferriss, um, all these people, like these men that were daring to like ask deeper questions and pursue paths that didn't make sense and still felt like they were very alive at various ages. It's like, oh, they all, okay, they they see it as worthwhile. I can do this too. Even though like not many people in my own life were like taking this kind of thing seriously. Yeah. Yep. And I, I definitely see the glimpses from Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss, especially like Lynchpin. I'm, that's a book I'm reading now. Yeah. And I, I see Lynchpin so many of the, so the glimpses. Yeah. He's, he's, he's amazing. Um, so it's easy to take inspiration from somebody like that. Um, I'm actually, I'm having somebody come on the pod, on the podcast in a couple of weeks here, who's very, very passionate about creativity. And I wanted to get your thoughts on where we got this idea that creativity is reserved for a select few people that you're either born with it or you just you just don't have it i think it's just the industrial nature of society it's sort of turned into like everyone's a worker everything happens through work everything needs to be monetized and valued and once we do that we have like systems of gatekeepers and like the reality was i couldn't publish my book 20 years ago like I didn't, I didn't have the right connections or right background or right followership to publish a book through like a publisher. Yeah. I would have had to jump through all sorts of hoops. The fact is today I can just do it. I can just roll up on a website and <laughs> upload a PDF literally. And like Amazon will print books for me. Right. So it's very easy to like think, Oh, I want to write a book. And if you're in like 1995, you're like, that's eh, stupid. I shouldn't think that. And that might be a reasonable thing to do because it might be literally impossible for that person to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so over time, we have generations of people that say they're not creative. I encounter this all the time, especially in older generations. I'm not creative. It's like, oh, really? You literally raised children. That is like, the most creative thing in the world. Um, a big creative outlet for people is their wedding. Weddings have become the most elaborate display of creativity in our modern culture. But it do doesn't get looked at as that. Like, why do people care so much about these things? I think because it's the first time they get to fully realize an expression of feelings inside of themselves and do that externally. Right. I didn't I didn't have a big wedding. I, I me and my wife both prefer like creativity and like writing form and other things like that. But sure. like I think if you look at the wedding through like the lens of creativity and other things people do, like you start to see it everywhere. Just the I mean the creativity of like just figuring out how to host a podcast is non trivial still. And so how do you like how do you recommend that people kind of exercise this creativity? Because I actually I actually used to be somebody who, who kind of said the same thing that you just mentioned like 15 seconds ago about, oh, no, I'm not really a creative person. I'm more of like an anal analytical kind of logical person. I'm not creative. But then I started kind of leaning into it with the writing and the podcast and like doing all these sorts of things kind of made me realize like, what the hell am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. So I think one is just like paying attention. Oftentimes it's already in our life. It was the same for me. 
I had been writing on and off and like writing kept showing up in my life. If I look back now, I look back and I'm like, Oh my God. Like I was like so desperate at all these points to like do these random creative point things for no purpose. Um, but I think a way to lean into it is pick something small and safe that you can quit, right? People get so caught up in like this perfectionist mindset that things need to be perfect. Yeah. It's like, it's such a waste of energy. I'm still making mistakes like a hundred podcasts in and in my writing and Uh my book shipped with like spelling errors. It's like, I I don't know. Like you got to, like I call it ship, quit and learn. Like basically come up with what can you do in a week that you can decide going in. All right, I'm designing this such that I can quit. And the only goal is to learn what to do next. It takes the stakes out of it. You're not doing it for likes, followership, approval, perfection, quality, whatever. You're just trying something. And I call this like an action challenge. So there's a number of things you can do. You could host a small dinner party, creative act for sure, Mm -hmm. um, and a conversation around that. You can um, record like one podcast episode, right? Most people have the equipment to record one podcast episode. You don't need a fancy mic. You can do it on iPhone earbuds. Just record it on your phone on Anchor and just hit publish, see how it feels, share it with one friend. Um, You can write a blog post. So there's this app called the Most Dangerous Writing App. You keep writing or the text will disappear. Just do that once for five minutes. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Um, One YouTube video. Right. And the only goal is to complete it. So you have to set a finite time frame. One week, one action, designed to quit. The only goal is to learn what to do next. And what people often experience in these small experiments is not that they've found some gold mine or like some perfection or succeeded at something. It's a feeling. They typically are like, oh, that felt good. I want to do that a little more. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a trap too of like being too online now. There's so much around like the creator economy and doing things and making money. It's like there's so many how-tos and hacks. Honestly, when I was starting writing, I would write like one thing and then like another thing wouldn't emerge for like six months. And then it got down to like four months and then three months and one month. And then like slowly over time, like it's like, oh, I want to write like most days. But that took years. Yeah. Um. And a lot of people aren't willing to wait that long, which is why, like, I think this, like, make money from your passion is probably not a good guidepost for most people. A better strategy is, like, figure out how to make a certain amount of money to support your life in it with as little effort as possible, and then just create space in your life to explore and experiment. Oftentimes, if you do that, stuff that emerges in the experiments will lead you to the way you need to go. Right. Maybe you maybe you stumble upon something that you end up being passionate about through that experimentation, right? right. Yeah, and and like I really I really like that you emphasized the power of kind of like putting those reps in, right? Because when you when you first started writing, it was like you know months had gone by before you felt inspired to write again, and then it soon became more and more of a habit. And like Seth Godin kind of inspired me to try this little writing challenge of my own, where I'm just like I'm just writing for like thirty days. And I've actually really been enjoying it. And like, you know, let's say 50% of the time, the writing just sucks. But like just the mental practice of of putting those reps in and making this a habit has 
like train me to just keep going and, and just show myself that I can stick to something. Right. And then the other 50% of the time, I actually really enjoy the writing. Not that it goes anywhere, but you never know if it sparks, sparks a creative idea um, to go in a different direction or something like that. Yeah. I and mean, that still happens to me. Like I write duds, but that's just what good, like good writing emerges from bad writing. Yeah. And if you hear that in the audience, even an author writes stuff. So there's your there's your reminder to just keep writing anyway. So in the book, you talk about um, reinventing yourself at, at one point um, closer to the end of the book. What does this mean to you? And, and what is your take on kind of like sticking to the advice, the commonly held belief, the commonly held advice is that we should stick to one thing once we find out what we're good at and just keep doubling down on that one thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good strategy for making money, but a lot of people don't have the actual stamina to like do it over the long term. Like they'll literally just burn out. Yeah. So like for me, it's like, I rather find one thing that like I won't burn out. So like find one thing, as long as you kind of can project, you can do it for at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reinventing yourself is important. Like you basically just need to reinvent yourself. Even if you're like an accountant, which is like seen as this like very boring job. It's not really, it's a very complicated job. Every single company you go to will have a different system, a different way of accounting, a different way of thinking about its business, a different way of accountants interacting with other functions and the status of those people inside a firm. So like, even if you switch jobs, you have to reinvent yourself usually, right? And we have to reinvent ourselves for different phases of our life. So it's like, I talk about that like end of the world illusion, like everything like now is how you'll be for the rest of your life. It's not true. We keep changing. We always underestimate how much we will change. So given that we'll change, like my take is basically lean into it and like actively shake things up a little. Make sure you're like on your toes a little. Yeah. Be be open to changing your mind. Be open to new perspectives. Be open and not rigid and, and stuck in your ways. Right. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And a lot of people think they're open-minded, but... Um, changing your mind feels terrible and like changing your beliefs about your own identity and what you're supposed to be doing in life feels even worse. It's like if you're optimizing around feeling comfortable or feeling good all the time, um, you're probably not reinventing yourself enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So every, every once in a while, like it might seem like it's good advice to just throw yourself into a, a, a difficult or new kind of experience. Um, and just see how you react. And then, you know, effectively what I'm trying to say is make yourself really uncomfortable by doing something that challenges you. And then you'll look back on that and and realize how you grew from it and how you might've changed um, because of that experience. Yeah, definitely. And if not, like life usually shows up with challenges (laughs) itself anyway. Um, You live long enough and you're going to face crises in your own life. It's just inevitable for anyone. I definitely think there's there's merit to actively trying to create some level of discomfort, right? Because oh, if, definitely. You, if you live some kind of if you if you try to live the most sheltered and comfortable life, if you optimize for comfort, as you said, you're kind of minimizing the chances that you'll ever 
experience something that's out of order for you. For sure. Right. Um, the longer we spend on a path that isn't ours, the longer it takes to move towards a path that is. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really just a way of saying, um, I think people underestimate the baggage you pick up along the way, right? Like change isn't like flipping a switch. It's often like this slow process of unlearning past scripts, past identities. So the longer you spend in a path that isn't yours, you're spending enormous amount of time and energy trying to fit into that person, trying to turn yourself into who that system, organization, or the people around you want you to be, right? And when you walk away, it just takes a long time. Like I see people getting started with like entrepreneurial stuff and following similar paths that I do at like age 24. And it's like, I look at them like, oh my God, they just have way less baggage than I do to like unlearn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had this enormous burden of like being afraid of like creating my path again. And like, it makes sense because I was 10. Well, if you count undergrad, I was 14 years into version 1.0 of myself and at the end of it i'm like i don't know if i want this whole path so like i'm very timid to like spend another 14 years on the wrong path mm -hmm. that'd be a lot of years in my life <laughs> so i'm just much more hesitant it takes me longer to do stuff i'm a little more afraid but i'm learning to go a little faster um but yeah it's if you spend 40 years on a path that isn't yours and then you retire and expect to be this alive, energized, connected person doing things you love. Like it's just not going to work. You became someone else. Well, it's also like my background is like system uh, systems engineering and we study like complex systems, basically powerful systems shape the elements or objects of the system to become what the system wants. Right. And this will happen in any organization. When you start out working, you're in these entry-level classes with like 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds. Everyone's so excited, energized, full of life, partying on the weekends. Everyone really enjoys their life. They like living in a city. And then somehow, the same people at that company turn into curmudgeonly, curmudgeonly old assholes at the age of 45. It's like, what happened here? <laughs> like, the system changed them. And like, they just sort of missed that happening. Yeah. Because they almost didn't have like any creative outlet or expression along, along that 20, 30 year journey. I don't know what the symptom is. I don't know what the cause is. I just see it happening. It happens in every organization. Yeah. There's a lot of grumpy old men in organizations. <laughs> and, and I think that, like the incentives of the system and the broader career fabric of the world are like nudging people in that direction. I just want to bring awareness to the fact that it's happening. Yeah. And then going back to the, to the topic of reinventing yourself, like it becomes, I don't know. I, I almost can see it going both ways, right? Because if you decide you know, two or three years into your career path, this isn't for you, then like you don't have a ton of inertia, right? You don't have right. a ton of, of, of kind of like doubt of 
changing your career path and, and going on a more pathless path, for example, right? But then again, like if you spend, like yourself, you spend 15 years in your career path and you're like, holy shit, that sucked. And that's not what I want the next 15 years to look like. Maybe right. that's even more pressure for you to go try something else. Yeah, it was easier in that sense, right? It's like I, I did five different jobs, grad school, multiple internships. Like I had enough data that was like, all right, this isn't my path. I'm, so I had a lot of confidence that like I didn't really want to turn back. I right. sort of left the door open when I left, but like, I don't know. I pretty much slammed it shut. Would I work for yeah. a company again? Maybe on my terms, like part-time or remotely. Um, I'm not working five days a week in some hustle job for an asshole. That's mm -hmm. off the table. I've closed that door. Yeah, yeah. That ship has sailed. Yeah, and who knows? I, and I could be wrong about all this. That's the thing. Like, I just try to approach this with like humility. Yeah. It's not about picking the right path. It's about continuing to be open to the fact that there might be stuff out there worth finding. Right, right. And that's that ties back to kind of the the entire premise of the book, right? It's more about unleashing that wonder yeah. that the default path tends to kind of destroy because it, yeah, allows, exactly. it you know, it, it stops us from, from being open to possibilities and open to serendipity. And being on a pathless path kind of reignites that. And because you have so many different directions that you can take, you're open to and, and kind of more conducive to having wonder be part of your mindset. Yeah, my podcast is sort of like broke, broken even. Um, but like I have the sense that like, okay, this conversation, me having these conversations, there's something this is leading me to. And it's may not be about money, but it's like there's a pull of like, okay, if I just trust this and commit to it, it might lead to something interesting. Yeah. If I just keep leaning, leaning into something that I'm right. enjoying and finding meaning in. And then the last, last thing I wanted to talk to you about was a really interesting quote that I candidly, I had to read this like four times before I could even <laughs> make sense of it. Um, it's Maria Popova. And she said that critical thinking without hope is cynicism, but hope without critical thinking is naivete. I think for me, I have a very analytical, rational mind, right? And analytical, rational minds like objective, clear decisions, obvious paths, the right answers, all these things. And on my path, like I always try to like, force myself like to do all this critical thinking about so many things like about like okay like i should take this job because it pays more i should stay in this path because it's like a sensible thing to do um but i had like no hope that i would like it would like lead anywhere interesting and then i think more broadly just like this uh, my a lot of my writing early on was a bit cynical in that it's like oh, organizations are broken. Everything is screwed. And you see this in like broader society and across the world now. Everyone is so convinced everything is terrible. It's because they don't have hope, right? They don't think things might get better, even at the individual level. Or even if their life is getting better, they've sort of like short-circuited that optimism. So I've really tried to like get cynicism out of me. I try not to be around people that are very cynical, negative, anti-against things, etc. Um, and I think it's one of the most powerful things we can do is like seek to get cynicism 
cynicism out of ourselves and like leave space for hop- optimism, hope, like possibility. What was it that made you want to um, remove the cynicism and, and the negativity and pessimism? It's who I want to be. So it's who I want to be and who I want to be around and how I want others to experience me. I've been around negative, cynical people. Nobody wants to be around them. They don't add to the conversation. They take away. They bring people down. They hate other people. They dismiss groups. Not an interesting way for me to show up. I want to speak on things I actually can make a difference on and care about those things. And that's where a lot of my optimism and hope comes from. Yep. I think the the first part of that quote, the critical thinking without hope is cynicism is kind of like, that's kind of like the academic that never yeah. really get, jumps into the water and who's always just critiquing the current state it's of the journalist, right? right? It's like everything is so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything's horrible, but like you're not actively involved in it. So is it even fair for you to comment on how horrible everything well, is? Well, if you read a lot of history, you also find that these kind of people exist at all points in all history, in all cultures. Mm. Like it's just a human like failure mode. For the individual, though, I think there is a choice. You can become aware of that and decide, okay, I'm going to try and lean away from that. Paul, this was an awesome conversation. Um, I encourage everybody who's listening to pick up a copy of The Pathless Path. I think that'll make you start to think deeply if you haven't already um, about some of these concepts in your own life um, and just get you on the right path of questioning everything around you. So uh, Paul, where can people connect with you online and where can people follow your, your writing and work? Uh, just Paul Millard. You Google my name, you'll find all my stuff. Uh, P underscore Millard and Twitter is a good place. And uh, my newsletter, boundless.substack.com. Most weeks I write. Awesome. Check it all out. Appreciate Thanks, you man. coming on, man. Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Awesome.